over the years. Hi everyone, I'm Kayla Myers. I'm a senior economics major here at UNC. I found love my, the tail end of my sophomore year of college and I stayed since then because kind of what Hope was praying for like the curious of the word and Jesus, I found that curiosity here. And not just a curiosity to seek knowledge but to respond in ways of radical generosity that mimics Jesus. Hey, I'm Amanda. I'm a junior at UNC as well. Um, I'm studying Spanish and disability studies. I found love my first day of searching for churches. Uh, I hadn't been going to church for three years. I came here. I didn't understand a word Matt said because I was so overwhelmed. Um, and then I contacted one of my old pastors, and he was like, you should check out Love Chapel Hill. Matt Leroy is the best. And so I came back, um, and he's not wrong. Uh, but I've stayed because I found a community where Jesus, his love is shown to everyone, um, no matter what. And that's why I've stayed. Okay, um, Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Continuing in verses 5 through 14. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sin, your Father will not forgive your sins. Continuing 16 to 18. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they will have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Awesome. Let's give it up for these friends here. Thank you. These are some of our college students um, who are key leaders in this church community. And uh, I wanted to have them up here reading together um, because I think in so many ways they represent the heart of who we are. And uh, I just want to say to all of our college students, thank you for... Um, the way that you lead here, okay? Thank you for the way that, that you show us what it looks like to love with the heart of Jesus. Um, thank you for the way that you continue to be a creative engine for us as a community. Um, your passion, your enthusiasm, your questions, 
your convictions. Um, you push us. You push us, and we really appreciate that. We appreciate the way that you lead us in such beautiful ways. So let's let's show our, our college students another round of applause to thank them for who they are. Amen. Awesome. So we are continuing here in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. And what you just heard read by our friends there is this section uh, that is in somewhat an answer to what has just come before. Okay, what we talked about last week is Jesus doing what he does, which is taking what everyone already knew, but he, he, he has a way of elevating it, of expanding it, of deepening our understanding of it. And these things that we think we've always known and that we've got it cornered. And yet Jesus in his genius and his brilliance and his heart for us shines a light on it in a way that is so illuminating that it turns everything upside down for us yet again. He somehow continues to shock and surprise us. I don't know how he does it, but he continues to shock and surprise us. And there's this sense in following Jesus that this will never get old. This will never get old. This ancient faith is never going to get old because Jesus is going to continue to lead you into places that will be challenging that will be reorienting for you. Passages that you can be very familiar with. Maybe you've memorized them word for word over the course of years. He has a way of taking and breathing this fresh kind of life into it. That somehow takes these words we're so familiar with. And he uses them to shock us yet again. He's a genius like that. And he loves us so much that he refuses to leave us where we are. He'll always push us and challenge us to move into deeper places with him. So that's what he was doing and what we were talking about last week in that section where Jesus is unpacking the law. You have heard it said this, but I tell you this. And in flipping that on its head, he expands, he deepens, he elevates our understanding of what we thought we always knew. And so as we were talking last week, the law for the people of Israel set this moral framework for them, right? And the way that the law set the moral framework was a series of commands of you should not do these things, all right? Do not do these things. And at the heart of that, as we talked about those three things, it's about our relationship with God, it's about our relationship with each other, and it's about our relationship with ourselves. It's about righteousness, it's about justice, and it's about identity, and Jesus, when he's pressed by the Pharisees and the experts in the law to pick out what is the most important commandment, Jesus chooses these two commands that in a beautiful way encompasses all of the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? That's about relationship with God. And love your neighbor, that's about relationship with others, as yourself, that's relationship with self, right? And so he completely... Um, pulls together in this brilliant way all of the teachings that have come before him. And it's brilliant the way that Jesus does that. So this covenant that God gave to his people to create this covenant kind of community to show the world this is what the community of God looks like. That law that he gives to them, in most of their understanding, it had to do with don't do this. 
And so the people also developed on the other side of that a, a positive way of living, right? Not just like a list of things not to do, but also here are a list of things that you should always do. All right, here are things that you should do. And so those three things that were at the heart of righteousness for the Jewish people and their understanding of what right acts look like, about practicing righteousness, at the heart of that, there were three things that they stressed consistently. And it's the three things that Jesus lays out for us in this next section. And that's why he chooses these three things. Prayer, fasting, giving. Prayer, fasting, giving. Jesus says this is practicing righteousness. It's not something he's making up. It's something he's drawing from what, from what the people already believed and knew and practiced on a daily basis. Now, so where do they get that from? If, if this kind of moral framework of what not to do is drawn from the law, then this moral framework of what they should do is drawn from another key piece of scripture that is given to their forefathers. It's, it's this prayer known as the Shema. Okay, Shema is a Hebrew word that simply means to hear or to listen. And it's called that because the beginning of this prayer starts with that word. And here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Does that sound familiar? Right. It should. Okay, so this is the prayer that the Jewish people formed their lives around this understanding of who God is, how they should worship God in response to that and how they should live in covenant with one another as well. And so this Shema was this prayer called the Shema is so important to them. They would book in their day with this. They would begin the day by praying it. They would close the day by praying it. And it's supposed to be this framework for all of life. This is how we live. And so drawn from the Shema are these three things that Jesus lays out that were a part of practicing righteousness for the Jewish people. Okay, so when he talks about prayer, that's what they're saying. This is what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all your heart is to pray. When you fast, that's to love the Lord your God with all your soul. And when you give to people in need, that's to love the Lord your God with all your strength. It's this outward kind of action. And so the people understood that as they looked back on the Shema, this prayer that was forming for them, that was shaping for them. They prayed it in the morning. They prayed it in the evening. It was the framework of their lives. And from that, they draw. This is what it looks like to practice righteousness to love the lord your god with all your heart prayer with all your soul fasting this deep physical form of prayer right that reaches to the deepest places of us that taps into even our most carnal deepest cravings that we want to satisfy fasting and then with all your strength giving to others follow up on that What it says in the verses after the prayer is this. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And the people were so committed to being shaped and framed 
by the Shema, that they did this literally. Some people took this to the extent, and even today, in devout Jewish households, you will find as you're about to enter in through a door frame, you will find uh, fastened to the side of that door frame a small container within it holding the scriptures. They took this so seriously. They did that then. Some people continue to do that now. Some experts in the law and teachers of the law took this so seriously with the Shema of binding it to their hands and their heads that they would literally form and and make these small little containers and these tiny little versions of the scripture that they would put into the containers and they would tie them around their heads and walk around with them tied bound to their foreheads. Why? Because that's what he told us to do. That's what he told us to do. But in this moment, as Jesus is taking these three things that everyone there listening would have been so familiar with and would have understood as practicing the Shema, as practicing righteousness, a right relationship with God, Jesus says, yes, you have bound them to your foreheads and your hands. Yes, you have fastened them to your doorposts and your gates. Yes, you talk about them when you lie down and when you get up. Yes, you talk about them at the table and with your children. But have you impressed them on your hearts? Have you impressed them on your hearts? Which is the core command that God is getting at in this prayer that he gives to his people. And so once again, just like Jesus was doing with the law, Jesus now takes the Shema and he pierces to the heart. He pierces beyond the exterior practice that the people have built up. And he pierces down to the root motivation. And he shines a light in dark places for us. And he begins to ask us the question. I'm not not asking you what are you doing. I'm asking you why are you doing it? Where is the motivation? Where is the motivation? And two key questions that Jesus is asking for all of us in these acts of righteousness That he assumes we're performing, right? He doesn't say if you do these things. He says when you do these things. He's assuming this is a part of our practice of our our relationship with God. But he's asking us these key questions. From where does the motivation come? And to whom do they point? Do these acts point? From, From where does the motivation come? And to whom do these acts point that's what he's getting at here he's not saying to stop praying he's not saying to stop fasting he's not saying to stop giving he's saying when you do that re-examine and reorient your motivation from where do they come and to whom do they point that's what he's getting at that's the bottom line of what he is teaching us in this section now this is a real danger for us specifically as a church this specific body here, this specific expression of the body of Christ. This section today is one of the most dangerous sections for us. I say repeatedly how much I appreciate the way you publicly live out your faith and your acts of compassion and your acts of generosity and the way that you are determined to live lives that reflect the deep convictions that you have. 
for the way that you counteract in many ways a lot of the negative perceptions that people have of Christianity as I watch you as individuals and as a body live and carry yourselves and operate. I see that and it stirs up belief in me because of the way that you live your lives. And I want to encourage you in that. And I want to challenge you to continue in that. Even what we have out in the lobby today. This simple act of making cards for people who are at an assisted living center. Imagine what kind of light that's going to bring to their day to get that. And to say, man, somebody thought of me. They took the time to do that. And I love the way we could go through the list of things that you do to express the love of Jesus to the world. And I absolutely love that. But this is a dangerous passage for us. Because if we are not careful, we could get caught up with becoming simply activists. We should be activists as Christians. Absolutely. But if we're not careful, we could simply be concerned with this public kind of faith and along the way lose the intimate connection to the depth of it in our hearts and in our souls. And that's what he's looking for from us. He wants for the depth of what he's doing in our hearts and in our souls to produce those works that then point to him. But he will not sit quietly if our outward actions are impressive to other people or if we simply tout our outward actions as a way of impressing other people. And if there's a disconnect between that and what's happening in our hearts. If we are not careful, then our public witness that we always challenge each other towards, our public witness can easily become a public performance. And if we aren't careful as a local church, in the end, we will end up trying to point people to our brand of Christianity. Instead of to the one true Christ himself. It's always about him. It's always about him. Not presenting to people that, hey, we figured out a way to get this right. Not ever. It's always about him. So as we walk through what Jesus is teaching us today, let's have our hearts open. And let's ask him to keep our hearts and our souls tender to being convicted by the sharp words that he has to say today. These sharp words that have the power to pierce through the outward exterior of action and down to the core motivation and orientation of the heart. So Jesus begins this whole section. The, the, the key piece here is what Jesus says at the beginning when he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So that's how Jesus begins this section, and then he lays out the prayer of the giving to the needy and the fasting. So he begins by using this negative illustration of a hypocrite, all right? And maybe certain people come to mind when I say that word. I'm not going to ask for you to tell me, all right? Please don't shout it out, okay? But, but there are images that come to mind when we think of the word hypocrite. But it might not be the same image that comes to mind as for the original people who were hearing this when Jesus is speaking these words. 
Okay, for us, the word hypocrite has this religious and moral connotation to it. But in Jesus' day, it did not carry that. In fact, Jesus, in this genius and brilliant move, borrows this term from another part of culture and applies it to the practice of religion and applies it to religious people. But it's not a religious Term. So he makes it this thing about people who practice religion in such a public credit-seeking way that they show that there's nothing real behind their outward actions. And they get what they want. They get the public credit that they're after and possibly even admiration. But that's all that they get. But in his book, Divine Conspiracy, there's an author named Dallas Willard who points out that the term hypocrite is taken directly from classical Greek terminology, and it's a term that simply means stage actor or play actor. So when Jesus first says hypocrite, what comes to mind is for those people is not religious leaders who say one thing and do another. Instead, they're thinking of a play, and they're thinking of a stage, and it's this brilliant move that Jesus puts in front of them, not until Jesus' use of the word. Does it ever take on a moral meaning? And now in our culture, it continues to carry that moral meaning because of Jesus's teaching. But he pulls it from that common life to show the nature and character and lack of depth in the actions of these religious practitioners. An actor plays a role, a momentary embodiment of a character. But they're not really the person that they're portraying on the stage. Yes, actors can be convincing and even bring great conviction to their roles. It can be inspiring to see them in their work. But in the end, no matter how passionate the performance or valiant the execution of the craft, the curtain always falls. And in the end, the actor leaves the stage and sheds the role The applause of the audience fades. And so does the religion that's being practiced by the hypocrite. The curtain falls. The actor leaves the stage. This is precisely the image that Jesus is putting forth to describe the kind of empty religion that he's seeing in the lives of the people. They're giving, they're praying, they're fasting. It's like performance on a stage. And yes, they're earning the applause of everyone around them. Maybe even stirring the hearts of people around them. But the truth is, they are empty acts. The mask eventually comes off. And the person underneath does not match the role that they've been playing. Jokes are often made about actors saying, what's my motivation, right? We see that all the time. What's my motivation in this role? And that's a funny joke, but it's it's a true statement in what Jesus is getting at here. He's asking that question. Hey, you actor on the stage, what's your motivation? That performance is stirring, but what's underneath? What's your motivation? Now, we need to understand That being seen isn't ultimately the issue, okay? 
that that's not the sin of being seen isn't ultimately the issue because we know this because back in chapter 5 where we were a couple of weeks ago, Jesus plainly says that we are the light of the world, right? We all know that Jesus is the light of the world. And in this beautiful moment, he turns that back around on us and he says, but you are the light of the world. You're like a city on a hill, set up on a hill, that at nighttime you shine out bright in the darkness. And your light can't be hidden. Your light can't be hidden. And he says, nobody lights a lamp and then hides it under a bowl. In the same way, don't hide your light. Instead, take away the hiding and let it be seen. Let it cast light throughout the entire room and change the way we see that room right so what's jesus getting at here which is it is love a shining light like he says in chapter five or is love a secret conspiracy like he says in chapter six which is it is both what jesus is getting at is the motivation and he gives us that motivation at the end of what he's talking about with that illustration of the light He says, then people will see your good works and do what? Praise your Father in heaven. From where does it come and to whom does it point? That's the heart of what Jesus is getting at here. It is a shining light and it is a secret conspiracy both at the same time. And it's this overlapping thing. The issue is motivation, piercing the external actions and getting at the root Getting at the heart. It's not that your actions should not be seen. It's that you should never do them to be seen. You get it? It's not that the actions shouldn't be seen. It's that you shouldn't be doing them to be seen. I love the motto of our great state of North Carolina. Who can name it for some history bonus points? All right. Essay Quam which means? All right. Brooke and Chris. See me after class. (laughs) Miss April will give you a Quest Kids lollipop. Yeah. Awesome. To be rather than to seem. That's what Jesus is getting at here. I knew Jesus was a North Carolinian. All right. (laughs) That was blasphemy. Let me stop there. Okay. All right. He is a Tar Heel, let's face it. He's a Tar Heel, all right. Okay, cool. That's what Jesus is getting at, okay? Your reward, if you're doing this to be seen, then your reward is public praise and credit. Your giving to those in need actually becomes buying a reputation for yourself. That $5 that you spare as you walk down the street, It simply makes you feel better because it makes you look better if you're doing that to be seen. And what you end up doing is buying a reputation for yourself. And hear this, you're using people. You're using people to buy your own reputation. What's your motivation? From where does it come and to whom does it point? You're doing good, and you're, if, you, if, you, if your whole motivation is to be seen and to buy that reputation, then your reward is paid in full. You get the very thing that you seek 
And that's all you're going to get in the end. Your actions might draw attention, but they should not draw attention to yourself. Jesus warns us here against practicing righteousness in a way through giving, through praying, through fasting. Practicing righteousness in a way that gets the attention of others. That's motivated about gaining the attention of others. But he also warns us against practicing righteousness as a means of getting affection from God. Okay? So as a means of getting affection from God. And if we're not careful, we can get wrapped up in that as well. And we need to hear this. We need to hear this plainly. We do not perform the good works that Jesus calls us to perform and to live out in this faithful and public kind of way. We don't perform these good works as a way of winning his approval. You already have that. You already have that. It's not how it works, okay? You don't win his approval that way. You cannot behave your way into the kingdom of God. You cannot behave your way into the kingdom of God. You cannot earn your salvation because it's already been paid for. And you are not the one who paid for it. You are not the one who paid for it. The gospel is this. All of us are in desperate need of a sinner. We were created for a relationship with God, but because humanity falls into sin, that relationship is broken and severed, and we are broken along with it. But God refused to leave us in our sin. He's a holy God, so there's no way that we could have ever worked our way back to him. But he's a loving God, so he came to us. He came to us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in flesh and blood, fully God, fully human, comes to us to open up a way to reconciliation with God. Jesus lays down his own life and takes on the penalty that we should have had for ourselves. And he pays the price for us. And through his blood, he forgives us of our sins. Through his death, he brings us into a reconciled relationship with God, and through his triumphal resurrection from the dead, he wins our victory. And he fills us not only with forgiveness, but also with freedom in the way that we walk in our daily lives. That is the hope that we have, and that is the hope that we all share. That is not anything you could earn. You cannot behave your way into that. It's grace. And it's given freely. And your role is to embrace it and to receive it. Some of you have spent your lives trying to win the affection of other people. The one who matters most sees you and loves you. Not because of anything that you have done, but because of who he is. That's who he is. He loves you. He loves you. And he gave his life on the cross to prove it. He pursued you to hell and back to win your redemption. And it's yours. It's yours. Will you embrace it? And will you receive it? This is not something you can earn your way into or behave your way into. The kingdom of God does not have an admissions department. 
There is no one in the kingdom of God who is weighing your GPA, who's examining your extracurricular activities, who's reading over your entrance essay to see how clever and creative it might be, who's looking at your future potential for leadership. It simply does not work that way. It simply does not work that way. He has opened the way for you and your end. All you have to do is receive it. There is no scale on one side. Your evil works, your sin, all the bad things that you've ever done piled up against on the other side, all of the good things that you're attempting to do. And in the end, you hope that the good outweighs the bad. That is not how it works. On one side is all of humanity and on the other side is Jesus and grace tips the scale. Grace tips the scale. And his motivation is his love for you. So stop straining and receive. Stop performing and be embraced. Surrender. Surrender. I think it's beautiful the way he frames this teaching us about prayer. And and then connected to that, this fasting, which is a physical form of prayer, which means to abstain from something. Usually it has to do with food and eating something as a way of focusing our attention on God. Too often we think that that's a way to get God's attention focused on us. We can show him how serious we are about this. And he says, no, that's not what it's about. It's not about getting his attention on us. It's about getting our attention on him. And every time we feel that hunger and that craving for something, we're reminded of what our truest, deepest need is, the deepest hunger that we have, which is him. And so he frames all of this with this, these two words that I think are so powerful, and yet they're very controversial. These words that Jesus says, when you pray, you should pray like this. You should begin by saying, our Father. Our Father. Now, this was revolutionary for Jesus to say. Throughout the Psalms, we get some illustration and some imagery about God as the father of the people of Israel. And in other places throughout Scripture, we get that imagery. But it was highly uncommon for someone to throw around the terminology that God is my personal father. Highly uncommon. And yet Jesus, when we see him praying throughout Scripture, he's consistently praying this way. Father, my father. And now in this beautiful way of him teaching us how to pray, he draws us into the intimacy of that relationship that he has with the Father. And he says, this is how you should pray. Begin like this, our Father. Our Father. There are some people that think that that embedded in this language is even a more intimate version of the term Father. And it's this sense that we see Jesus praying in other other places where he refers to God as his Abba, as his Abba. And that would have, that would have been a, a word in that language and in that culture that was this intimate form of father. It would be the equivalent of us saying daddy, daddy. And there's this like childhood, like dependence and intimacy in that word. Abba. Abba, the sense is that that young Jewish children, as their father was leaving for the day, would run to their father, put their arms around his legs. Abba, Abba. And the scholars say that it's one of the first words that children of that culture 
were able to form. Abba. Abba. And Jesus is pulling us into that kind of intimacy. This is a father who loves you. Now, for many, immediately a wall goes up and barriers go up when we start to talk about God as father. And, and I, I'm sorry for that. That's heartbreaking. Whatever your experience is with your earthly father, maybe you were abandoned, maybe you were hurt. Maybe just even that word is sharp and pierces you. And for that, our heart breaks and God's heart breaks with you and for you. But let's think of it in this way. Why does it hurt when we say that? Because instinctively we know what a father should be like. And that's why it hurts so badly. When the earthly father does not live up to what instinctively we know the earthly father should do and be. And Jesus is telling us, you have a father in heaven who is far beyond anything you imagined, who is more than anything you've even thought to long for and hope for. Have you ever seen a child with their father and you think, man, I wish I had that? They're right here. Yeah. Amen, Donna. Amen. Amen. And where does that come from? It's from this innate sense of what should be. And Jesus is saying that longing doesn't even come close to the reality of who he really is. He loves you. He's proud of you. He believes in you. He loves you. This is not an affection that you have to win or earn or fight for. It's already yours. There are no formulas in prayer that get him to listen better to you. Drop that. Drop it. As the poet Eugene Peterson puts it, this is your father you're talking to. This is your father you're talking to. A couple of months ago, we took our boys to Disney World. And uh, this is them in the hotel room in Orlando the night before. They're Mickey PJs. They're little Mickey Mouse dolls that their grandparents got for them. And this is them all perfect and so excited. And this is them one second later. And this is them two seconds later. And Mickey has now become a weapon. Not the way it was supposed to go, all right? So we're going, taking them to Disney World, and this has been something that has been years in the making, all right? When's the perfect time to take them? We're thinking through that, analyzing that. We're saving money over the course of years to make this a possibility. Planning for months. Sarah is doing all this analytical work about when is the best time to go based on the weather. All right. Based on like when they take down the Halloween decorations and they put up the Christmas decorations. Like when is it not uh, New Jersey bike week? All right. That's a real thing. All right. We almost went that week. We're like, we're not going that week. Okay. No offense, New Jersey. Emily, that's for you. Okay. Um, <laughs> So all of this intimate planning and intense planning that's going into this. Sarah got us lined up with listening to this two-hour-long uh, uh, 
timeshare presentation so that we could get our hotel for free the whole time we were there, all right? And it was almost worth it to have to sit through that, okay? So all of this planning and building up, and we were like, when it's time to tell them, we've got to make the announcement like this memorable thing, okay? So I created this thing that was like a riddle but a poem, okay? So it's like this poem with like these fill-in-the-blanks words that rhyme so that as they build it along the way, it begins to dawn on them of what's happening, right? Okay, it's amazing. And so like the last line was, we're going to this castle that's also a house for your good friend, blank blank boom thank you Donna you're going to Disney World Donna awesome and so all of this planning that was that's going into this and this excitement that was being poured into this but what do you think would have happened if unlike Donna they didn't get it what if they couldn't fill in the blanks what if they couldn't figure it out What if they weren't following along right? What if they weren't thinking the same way I'm thinking and they couldn't figure out the riddle? What's going to happen? We're still going to Disney World, doggone it. All right? We're going. We're going. It's not like, oh, man, guys, you were so close. (laughs) So sorry. No, 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 no. We're still going. Because you know what? They want to go so badly, but we want it for them even more. We've got a greater sense of what this thing is going to be. They don't know. We were watching the movies, all the like classic Disney movies over weeks building up to this, right? So they're getting a sense, but they still don't know. They're children. But we know, and we wanted it for them more than they wanted it for themselves. When you're practicing righteousness, when you're living out this faith, when you're praying, when you're fasting, when you're giving, there's not a formula that you have to get right. You're not winning this. You're not earning this. He wants this to come from a place of deep motivation for you. And he wants you to know that he loves you. He loves you. Prayer is not about a formula. Fasting is not about a formula. It's about a family. And that's who you are in his eyes. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. You don't have to perform to win this love. And when it hits you that you are a loved child of God, when that light dawns in you, That is grace. That is grace. Your heart suddenly opens up like a flower to the sun. Your soul is warmed by the thought. Inner prisons and emotional walls swing open and crumble down. And you have this strange awareness that God likes you. He smiles when he thinks about you. He laughs when you think about him. And this is not I'm God and therefore I'm dutifully and contractually obligated to love you to some extent. This is I'm God and I'm free to do whatever I want. And what I want is to love you. That's what we're talking about here. That is grace and call me crazy. but That's about the best kind of news that I have ever heard. And it's for you. 
and it's for you. And you don't have to win it and you don't have to earn it and you cannot buy it because it's already been paid for and you are not the one who paid for it. This meal that Christians, since the time of Jesus, have shared together captures this sense of what he has done for us. Laying his life down for us, the beauty of the gospel, his work for us that wins our salvation, not our work for him. And this is what the work of Jesus looks like. Jesus took bread that was on the table, this very tangible image for his disciples so that they could capture in their minds and their hearts what was about to happen. And he takes the bread that is on the table and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body that's broken to make you whole. And he took the cup that was on the table. And he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin and the redemption of the world. I have paid the price. You never could. And you will never have to. Because I have done it for you. Jesus is inviting you to embrace this today. His sacrifice for you, his work in place of yours. And if you want to embrace that today, then we invite you to come forward. Tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup, taste and see that the Lord is good. And as you taste it, may you be overwhelmed in a fresh way with the depth of his love for you, not because of anything you've ever done, but because of who he is. This is who he is. There'll be two stations, one on this side and one on that side. If you need a gluten-free option, then that will be available for you here. Come and receive the good gift of God. Amen.